Coming to you from the Philadelphia area, this is the Westchester Church Podcast. Check us out at westchestercfc.com. Westchestercfc.com. We continue where we left off last week in the Garden of Gethsemane. We direct our attention to Matthew chapter 27. It is now the morning after Gethsemane, crucifixion morning. And yet before the crucifixion unfolds, there is an incident that occurs which only Matthew reveals to us in his gospel. So we come to Matthew chapter 27 and starting in verse 1, where Matthew records that when morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind. And he brought back the 30 silver pieces to the chief priest and to the elders, saying, that I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. Judas Iscariot is a tragic and a complex figure, isn't he? In a Bible with Jezebel's and Nebuchadnezzar's and Herod's, Judas is the name that looms the absolute darkest on the page. Whenever we find the names of all of the 12 disciples listed in succession, Judas's name is always appearing last. We remember that he was so captivated by greed and by money that he was willing to even steal from Jesus Christ himself. And Judas has just now turned Jesus over to his worst enemies and led him away now to be crucified as a result of that. Before Jesus had even been betrayed by Judas in the upper room, he had said that the one who betrays me that it would have been better if he had never emerged from his mother's womb. When Judas' parents gave a name to their son, they decided upon a name which means in the Hebrew, Jehovah leads. And yet as we are more than aware of though, Judas was led by another shepherd, wasn't he? He was sculpted by a much different potter than that of God. We're in the upper room, we are told that Satan entered into Judas's heart. And then he goes out and he vanishes into the night. You see, Judas had devised a master plan. Or I'm going to create a situation where I'm going to put Jesus in a position where he will have no other choice. He will have no other recourse but to defend himself and to retaliate. He's going to launch a violent revolution against Rome. And when, you know, as all of this happens, I'm going to cause this to happen and I'm going to get paid to do it. And so as we all know, the, of course, the price that they had decided upon was a bag of silver coins. 30 pieces of silver. 
That's basically enough to have a weekend getaway in Atlantic City. And I mean, in Gethsemane, we can see the excitement welling up in Judas Iscariot. As he greets Jesus, literally translated in his greeting is him saying, Rabbi, rejoice. And as he kisses Jesus and turns him over, this this was not one single kiss, but it is, in the original language, it literally means to kiss fervently and repeatedly. This is the customary greeting that you would give to a long-lost friend you haven't seen after a very long journey. And yet it's very clear and very evident to us in the text that Judas was not expecting Jesus to have been crucified, let alone even arrested. And yet as he stands there in Gethsemane and he watches Jesus allow them to arrest him, and now as he sees Jesus standing condemned, well, his smile fades. His elation, it departs. His heart plummets and it breaks. And now, all of a sudden, all the things that he was considering doing with with all of those silver pieces, now all of a sudden, that is no longer even a thought in his mind. And you know, I really believe that in verses 3 and 4, we're reading something very, very, very important that we probably don't spend nearly as enough time noticing as we should. I mean, you can disagree with me if you want to. But in this one isolated moment in verses 3 and 4, I really, really, really believe that we are seeing glimpses of the spiritual beauty of Judas Iscariot. Where despite everything that we read concerning him, despite his diabolical reputation that we know so well, by every appearance of what we have read in the text, in this moment, Judas is bearing the fruits of repentance. Where we see it in his thinking, where, where Matthew says in the text that Judas changed his mind. This is the very essence of the Greek word for repentance, metanoia, which means literally to change one's mind. And to put on a brand new mind and a new way of, of seeing and and of considering, and of thinking. But we also see it in Judas's actions, where we see Judas go back to the exact same chief priest who he had conspired with. Now this is a very humiliating thing for Judas, but he's so heartsick with grief that he doesn't care what the chief priests think of him anymore. And we see this guy who loved greed and who loved money so much return all 30 silver coins to these chief priests. I mean, notice that he does not keep eight or nine or ten silver coins for himself, and he brings all the rest back, but rather he goes back to these same people, and he returns every single thing that they had given to him. Judas cancels his reservations in Atlantic City, and he says, I don't want this anymore. And so we see it in his actions, but really primarily we also see it in Judas's speech. Where Judas says it out loud for, for all of them to hear that I have sinned. 
Did I miss the mark of what God has intended for me to be as a human being? I've done that which was wrong, and I have, as he says, I have betrayed innocent blood. Judas takes a very serious and a very honest and a very candid look deep into his heart. And notice in the text that I just read that Judas is no longer being described to us as a disciple of Jesus. But rather now he is being referred to as Jesus' betrayer rather than his follower, his student, his disciple. Matthew chapter 26, where we read last week in Gethsemane, it says that Judas is described to us as the betrayer. And I don't know about you, but that sounds like how Satan is, is really described, the adversary, the accuser, the evil one. Now Judas has become the betrayer. And yet Judas has this moment, though, where he senses the impact of the choices and decisions that he's made. Judas despises everything that he's done, and he despises everything that he has become. And what appears to be rising up within him is, Oh God, what have I done? And so it appears to us in the verses that we've read so far, that this painful experience that so oftentimes is Christian transformation in Christ's likeness is well underway within Judas. I mean, as I read this, I just want to applaud Judas. It's like a child taking their very first steps, and it's like, yes, he's doing what is right. He's learning from his mistakes. He, he's acknowledging his faults. He's changing. He's taking steps forward. I mean, how, you know, how many people have we known who never do the things that, that Judas is doing in verses 3 and 4? He's doing them. And yet I'm reminded of what happened hundreds of years prior in the days of the prophet Jeremiah. Where in the days of Jeremiah, God likens himself to a potter who is seated at the wheel. He personifies Israel as the lumps of clay in his hands. And he says that if you will listen to my voice and, and do what I, I want you to do in your lives. And you relent from the evil that you were doing in the world. Then I'm going to fashion you and I will mold you into something so beautiful. You see, this is exactly what Jesus invites us to in the process of transformation. It's what we see him doing with his 12 apostles, but it's also what he does with us. If you will draw near to me and listen to my voice, and you will relent from the way that you've always lived prior, I, I will fashion and I will mold you into something so utterly beautiful. And yet we step out of the potter's workshop, though. And we walk through the potter's field. And as we're walking through the potter's field, we begin hearing crunching noises underneath us. We begin feeling cuts on our ankles and on our feet. We ask Jeremiah, what are these jagged objects that are cutting us as we walk through the potter's field? 
And then comes his reply that these are the broken fragments of the vases that could have been, that might have been, but never were. Sadly, even though we see a well of remorse welling up and overflowing Judas's soul, tragically, this is not the story of the guy who learned from his mistakes and who lived happily ever after. Rather, this is the story of the transformation that never fully was. You see, Judas and the chief priest are shards of shattered vases of what could have been. And we've seen a lot of could have beens in the world, haven't we? I think about an artist in the early 1980s, John Michel Basquiat in New York, who was just this prolific virtuoso artist who had museum ex exhibits as soon as 21, 22 years old. As soon as people see anything that he ever thought about creating, they instantly know that that is a Basquiat because of how transcendent he was as an artist. And yet tragically, Basquiat overdosed on heroin and he joined the 27 Club. Many people in the world have mourned this loss of what could have been. 1986, the Boston Celtics drafted a forward named Lynn Bias out of Maryland, not, not very far away from where we're sitting. He was by far the most electrifying prospect in sports at that time. And furthermore, the Celtics had just won the championship and they were adding Lynn Bias to their roster. I mean, this was the guy who was going to take the torch from, from Russell and Havlicek and Bird and challenge Michael Jordan into the 90s. And yet just 48 hours after he had been drafted into the NBA came bombshell news of his death at the age of 22. Coke. And many sports fans ever since have been mourning this loss of what could have been, but never was. In the late 1950s, there was a jazz singer whose name had been um, Beverly Kenny. I don't know if you know that name. Just about a week and a half ago, I heard one of her songs, and I, I didn't know who it was. And, and I mean, she is just a very rare handful example where she had this voice that was so mesmeric that it just brings tears to your eyes as you listen to her sing. She was just beginning to establish herself in the world of music, but Beverly Kenny had been tormented by anxiety and by depression. And she was found dead in her apartment in Greenwich Village. And next to her body had been a note that she left for her closest friend that said, this, this had nothing to do with you. I really loved you. Please see that I'm cremated. And every time that I hear her song, I just mourn what could have been. Because all these years later, the name Beverly Kenny is a name nobody knows. Only the very most obscure jazz fan knows anything about her at all. 
And yet in the text, though, as, as Judas explains, and, and he goes to the chief priest in verse 4, once again he says that, that I, I have betrayed innocent blood. And the chief priests reply, and they say to him, well, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And then we're told in verse 5, and, and then throwing down the... Um, Rather, and then throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, Judas departed. And he went and he hanged himself. But the chief priest, taking the pieces of silver, said that it is not lawful to put them into the treasury since it is blood money. And so they took counsel and, and um, had brought with them, or and had bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood still until this day. I mean, Judas has a change of heart. He confesses his sins. And yet, like so many people in the world and so many people in churches, he is so um, tormented by guilt and shame. He feels as if his sins are so utterly heinous and unforgivable. That Judas succumbs to despair. And I mean, he is so shattered that he thinks that the only solution that's going to make the world rejoice is by ridding the world of himself. And that's a place where I have found myself in many years ago. I wouldn't be surprised if there were others in this church who... At some point in your life, you, you found yourself in this place where, where everything within you was held. And you know, the greatest tragedy of Judas Iscariot is not that he betrayed Jesus. And yet the greatest tragedy of all concerning Judas is that it appears that he thought that his sin and his mistakes and his darkness was greater than the grace that God has to offer us. And we marvel because Judas spent three years living with Jesus. He heard his teachings. He saw his miracles with his own eyes. He looked upon and he reached out and he touched with his own hands everything concerning the word of life. And if things had been any different in his pursuits earlier on in his life, I really do believe that Jesus could have done so many beautiful things through Judas Iscariot. And yet now, as we walk in the potter's field, it's just so utterly sad because this is his contribution to the world. This is Judas's legacy, where he leaves behind a field of blood and a cemetery where a bunch of people whose names nobody ever knew had been buried. And as we walk through the potter's field and we see the tree close by, it's made known to us that that's, that's the tree where Judas hung himself. And Judas is a shattered vase of what could have been, but never exactly was. And this is going on with the chief priests as well. I mean, they've got all of this knowledge of the scriptures and the Torah, so much good that God could have done if God was in their hearts, but God never was exactly in their hearts. 
That's because underneath all of this fancy religious exterior that they had held, they were harboring a love for sin in their hearts. You know, I find it so interesting in the text. Notice in those verses I read just a moment ago, whereas Judas returns to them, and, and he's going on and on about how he had betrayed innocent blood. Notice how none of these chief priests are arguing with Judas about Jesus being innocent. I mean, have you ever noticed this before? You see, these guys know that Jesus is innocent. They know that he is the one. He, he's the Messiah who their ancestors have been waiting for all of these years. They never exactly say it out loud, but in their response, though, this is a confession that Jesus Christ is innocent. They say it with their own mouths in the text, this is blood money. Meaning, I mean, what, really, what does that mean? It means this money is dirty. And we are the purveyors of this money. We gave this money to Judas. And yet even though they know that Jesus is an innocent man and that they have handed over blood money, <laughs> what is their reaction after you know, confirming Jesus' innocence. Their response is, well, and they shrug. Anyway, let's go whip up the crowds and, and get this innocent man executed now. I mean, it's just jaw-dropping that even after Jesus had died and risen from his grave and the Roman soldiers come and they're, they're all freaking out because they, they know that they could be executed for, for him not being in, in his tomb. Notice how when they go to the chief priest in Matthew chapter 28, the chief priests are still not through dishing out dirty money. Matthew chapter 28 says that as the soldiers come to them, it says that when they had assembled with the elders and had taken counsel, notice they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers. And they said, and you can just imagine, whispered to them in the darkness behind closed doors, you are to say that his disciples came by night and stole his body away while we were asleep. And so they say this, but they also Say, and if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. And so they took the money and they did as they were directed. They, they accept the money just as Judas had. And it says in this story and these lies about Jesus and about his body, this is a story, Matthew says, that has been spread among the Jews to this day. And I just grieve over the chief priests too, because at no point do we ever find them saying we were wrong. I mean, these guys do not want to change. Their attitude is, God does not need to, to fashion and mold me. I'm already a perfect masterpiece of my own greatness. When all along they were the shattered vases of what could have been. And yet, if there were just some way that Judas had mastered his, his sadness and his despair, just, just over a month later, Judas would have seen the Apostle Peter stand up on the day of Pentecost 
and smash and shatter more than 3,000 vases. Where he stands up and he says, "Let, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And it says that as as many people assembled there heard these things, that that they were cut to the heart. So more than 3,000 people are told that, that our Messiah was here, but guess what? We bludgeoned him. We murdered him innocently. And all of these people take a very honest and a very candid look within their hearts. And they have this very intense moment where they're finally sensing and grasping their actions. They hate what they've done and they despise everything that they have become. And what is rising up within them is, oh my God, what have we done? So you see Judas and the chief priests are not the only ones who have the blood of Jesus on their hands. Judas and the chief priests are not the only people who ever love to sin. We have all had our experience in this. And we also have our moments where, where we are sensing many of our actions. You know, when I see old images from when I was a child, and when I watch old home movies from when I was on my mom's lap, I can see the innocence in my eyes. It makes me very happy watching this, knowing how loved I am by my parents, but, you know, there's also a melancholy as I watch it, because it is inevitable that we grow older, We make terrible decisions. Eventually, we grieve our parents. And we do something that makes their hearts sad. And in the same way, we grieve the Holy Spirit sometimes, and we grieve the heart of God. We pack our bags and we go to Atlantic City for the weekend. And we revel in the darkness, but then when we fully grasp what we've done, it's like, oh God, what have I done? Judas was shattered by the sorrow of his sins, but sadly, though, it was not the kind of sorrow that comes from above. As the Apostle Paul writes to a very troubled congregation in Corinth, he he has to say very unpleasant truths to them. But what he says is, is that, as it is, I rejoice. Not because you were grieved. You, You needed to be grieved, he says. He says, but I rejoice because you were grieved to the point of repentance. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. And then he says, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation that has no regret of what we did in the past. As horrible as it was, we understand that that God's grace is now covering me And I'm no longer who I used to be. And yet he also says, and he explains that, whereas worldly grief produces death. And this is where Judas Iscariot left us. He had a worldly sorrow within him. You see, King David has 
this particular moment where he senses the impact of his choices and his decisions. David despises everything that he's done and he despises who he's become. And he spends a sleepless night weeping in the dirt saying, Oh God, what have I done? And yet this is the godly sorrow that we see within him where where his prayer in Psalm 51 is, Have mercy on me, O God. Blot out my sins and transgressions. Do not cast me out of your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit away from me. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. And if you do, God, I will teach transgressors your ways and I will bring people back to you just as you brought me back. And yet you see, before he could reach this point of transformation, first David had to be smashed and shattered by the truth. Nathan saying, David, you are the man. And yet once David had been shattered and broken apart, then God comes in and he pieces David back together by his grace. I think about the man who is standing up on the day of Pentecost. Simon Peter is the one who's speaking. He's got the keys to the kingdom in his hand, but but just maybe a month and a half prior, what is Peter doing? He's cursing people out, saying, I swear to God, I never even heard of Jesus of Nazareth. He's whipping out his sword and he's getting rebuked by Jesus. He's getting called Satan by Jesus in the upper room. And as Jesus looks at him the way that he did as the rooster crowed, you better believe that he wanted to die. And yet he, just like thousands of people in Acts chapter 2, he had a godly sorrow. He had an understanding that even though it is true that my darkness got an innocent man executed, In such a larger sense, Jesus willingly laid down his life for me, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame for me. And he had this understanding that that God cares so much more about our todays and our tomorrows than our yesterdays and our pasts. And so we read in Acts chapter 2 that there response and they just completely interrupt his sermon and I love that and and they say what must we do and then Peter says let every one of you repent and be baptized into Jesus Christ for for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit and that is exactly what happened And you know, it just goes to show us that that as every one of us goes to the water, every one of us stands at the cross and at the waters of baptism as a broken vessel. And the only way that we enter into Jesus' family, into his church, is as a shattered vase, welcoming and imploring Jesus to put us together by his grace and by his love. As we bring another series and another message to its close here this morning. In these experiences of the 12 disciples, what we've seen is is that transformation is beautiful. And yet it is also a very slow and a painful process. 
one with exhilarating highs and agonizing lows. Transformation hurts. But when it begins to ensue within us, it is heaven upon earth. So what I want to invite myself to, as well as you to in the days which lie ahead, is just simply this. Yes, let's be aware of the bad choices and mistakes that we have made. And yet don't become those mistakes. If we allow it to, guilt and shame will destroy us and eat us alive just like it did Judas. That we need to confess our sins to God every day, yes, but more than anything else, confess the grace of God that is within us. Where we say it out loud every single day in our prayers, I am a child of God. My past is forgiven and my name is written in heaven. If we do this, we are affirming that we are slowly but surely becoming something more beautiful in Jesus. And we are the broken vessels that He is being invited with open arms really to piece together by His grace.